So the concept of a legacy is something that I think all Christians should be thinking about. And the idea that we want our lives to have long-lasting impacts. We want our lives to have results that are going to outlast us in this world. And we want the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that to be affected positively by the things that we do today. And many people, when they, when they think of a legacy, they think in financial terms. And I want to leave my children with a good inheritance so that they can, they can start off on the right path when I pass away. But that's not the, the legacy that I'm talking about, although that is wise and prudent to do. The legacy that I am talking about is a spiritual legacy. And throughout church history, we have many examples of this. I think of the Wesley brothers, men who had parents who took seriously the call to leave behind a spiritual legacy through the teaching and training of their children. And then John and Charles Wesley would go on to have a a ministry that would change England and America forever. In fact, we still experience their influence today. I don't know if you remember one of the songs that we sang last week. And Can It Be? A beautiful song about the love of our Savior, questioning how a God could love us so much. Well, that hymn was written by none other than Charles Wesley. See, this this family was an example of generational faithfulness that has left a mark still today. But unfortunately... This is not what we often see in this world. You know, there's far too many examples where the only legacy that's left behind is one of pain and suffering, or anger and rebellion, or, or sin and broken relationships. And, and, and sadly, this is really a reality of the whole story of humanity. I mean, isn't it? If we were to to take a glance at the spiritual legacy of mankind throughout all of history, would it be one of success and faithfulness? Or would it be one of sin and rebellion? We see it all starts back with generation zero, Adam and Eve in the garden. See, they had the opportunity to build a legacy that would live forever and enjoy the presence of God forever. But instead, because of their sin, the only legacy that they brought about was a legacy of sin and death. A legacy that then would be passed on to every single offspring that would come from Adam and Eve. I think of Cain and Abel. Cain, the direct offspring of Adam, goes and kills his very own brother out of jealousy. I think of Genesis chapter 6. The world has already become so corrupt and so full of wickedness at this point that the Lord needs to destroy it with a flood. I think of Abraham, you know, a man of great faith, but he is not free from the stain of the sin of his fathers. You know, he, he does not trust God and fathers a child out of wedlock who would then go on to become a nation that would persecute the chosen nation of Israel. He would sent his wife out of fear into the harem of a foreign king because he didn't want, he wanted to protect his own skin. And then we see later, his, this is passed on to his son. You know, his son Isaac does the very exact same thing, sending his wife into the harem of another man. 
You know, but what about David? Is, is, is David any better? I mean, a man after the, the God's own heart, and yet also a murderer, a liar, an adulterer. You know, one of his sons wanted to kill him. One of his sons sexually abuses his very own sister. And one of his sons goes on to have 700 wives and 300 concubines and be led astray after their, their gods. And so what then is humanity's legacy? Righteousness, faithfulness, and life? Or sin, rebellion, and death? All of which began way back in the garden and has chained and shackled humanity ever since. And the question then arises in our minds, who? Who can reverse this curse of sin and death? Well, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to to 38, and we will look at that question this morning. Jesus, starting in, uh, actually starting in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methoth, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Semyon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltail, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Bethoth, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melchah, the son of Mena, the son of Methatah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphraxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. And there you go, Thomas and Tabitha. So many names for your next son. I personally like uh, Aminadab. Go for that one. So, uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the events of Jesus' baptism and his following genealogy. 
And in doing so, we're going to be taking a closer look at who Jesus actually is. You know, who is this mysterious man who has risen out of the backcountry of Galilee? And how is he the solution to the legacy of sin that plagues all humanity? And so first, let's look at the baptism of Jesus. And his baptism is divided up into three parts, you'll notice. First, you have the baptism of the Son. Second, you have the descending of the Spirit. And third, you have the proclamation of the Father. And so we have all three persons of the Trinity intimately involved in this monumental moment in history. And so first, we have the baptism of the Son. Verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Now a few questions arise as we examine the baptism of Jesus. The first one I know that came to my mind is, why is so little said about it? You know, in Matthew's account, you have this whole conversation that occurs between John the Baptist and Jesus where John is like, no, I'm not the one to be baptizing you. You should be coming and baptizing me. But then here in Luke's account, I mean, you could, you could sneeze and almost miss it. It seems as though he's just mentioning it in passing. In passing. He simply says, Jesus also had been baptized. And so his his focus is clearly not on the actual baptism of Jesus. Now, why is that the case? Well, if you remember, what is John's baptism? It's a baptism of repentance. Well, Jesus never sinned and therefore did not need a baptism of repentance. And so why, why, why do it? Why was Jesus being baptized? Well, he tells us in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that he was being baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus was baptized in order to comply with the divine institutions of God and to be an example of righteousness for all of us. I mean, he had no need of repentance, but in being baptized, he was proclaiming the truthfulness of John's message and John's baptism. And that through repentance and faith, one can be made ready to receive the Messiah. And so Luke, he he mentions Jesus' baptism for that reason. But then he he quickly moves on uh, to what he really is wanting to stress here. Look at verse 22. It says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now what is going on here? See, all four gospel writers record this event of of the Holy Spirit coming down and resting upon Jesus like a dove. And so it must be important for us. But why? Well, it's important because this is the moment when Jesus is anointed and coronated as king. See, I'm not sure if if you're familiar with the idea of a, a coronation. We don't really have kings and queens very much anymore, but a, a coronation is when the king is officially given their ruling powers and the symbols and signs that signify that. And we, we recently had a coronation, if you follow the, the English crown at all, for Char- King Charles III. And in this ceremony, the, the crown of England was blessed and then went and placed upon King Charles's head, anointing him as as king and ruler of England. 
And so he is now officially king and ready to fulfill his mission of leading the commonwealth of England. Well, Jesus' baptism is his coronation. See, it's the the spirit of the living God being placed upon him, setting him apart as king and ruler. But not of some earthly kingdom like England and not some corrupt and, and false king like King Charles III, but of the kingdom of God, which he is about to establish. See, we read these words in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 5, and and listen for how the anointing of the king is described here. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will judge, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. You see, the word, the word Christ literally means the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed king described here in Isaiah 11. He is the one who will come and execute justice and righteousness. He will look, he's the one who's going to come and impart wisdom and truth to his people. He's the one who will strike the evil and the wicked of the earth who seek to pervert his standards of justice. Jesus is the one who will sit on the throne of David as the anointed one by the Spirit of the Lord. And so that's why this this moment is so monumental in history of the Spirit coming down, anointing Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we see in the next half of the the verse, not only does, does he have the Spirit's anointing, but also the Father's approval. Look at verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now imagine that you are watching this, this moment happen. You're standing there and, and the heavens have just opened up. I don't even know what that would, would look like. But it says they've, they've opened up in this, in this apocalyptic nature. And then all of a sudden you see, and, and Luke stresses that, this dove is coming down in bodily form. You know, it's not purely spirit. It's coming down and you can see this, the spirit coming and descending and then resting upon Christ. And then you hear this loud and booming voice like you've never heard before. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You know, so far in the, the narrative of Luke, we've, <clears throat> we've had an angel affirm the sonship of Jesus. We've had Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, Zechariah all affirm the sonship of Jesus. Even Jesus himself, when he's 12 years old, goes to the temple and says he is in his father's house recognizing his own sonship. But here is a a special moment. God the Father 
the creator of all things, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one and only true God, calls out from heaven, you are my beloved Son. This is the one you have read about in the Scriptures. This is the one I have promised. This is the one who will rescue and redeem Israel. This is the one who is the king of Psalm chapter 2, whom I said, kiss the Son, lest you perish in your ways. And so he is the beloved son. And not only that, the Lord is pleased with him. Now here we have Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1 being alluded to. Which says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Now it's interesting that these, these two passages are mentioned together. Psalm 2, which speaks of Jesus' sonship and kingly rule. And then Isaiah 42, which speaks of his servant nature. And they're they're linked together here. And what it really serves to do is it shows us the two sides of Jesus. Yes, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yes, he is the king on the throne of David, but he's also... The suffering servant who voluntarily lays down his life for his subjects. Yes, he judges the nations with justice and righteousness, but he's also the one who extends a tender hand of grace and mercies to sinners like you and me deserving only his wrath. And this Jesus who is both king and servant pleases the Lord. And his mission pleases the Lord. You see, the the plan of God to send Jesus as the ransom of the world was not just some afterthought in God's plan. You know, God isn't begrudgingly standing up there and saying, ah, these insolent people have thwarted my plans. And now my only option is to send my son to fix the problem. You know, these, these foolish human beings have forced my hand in a certain direction. No, it pleased the Lord to send his son as a ransom. Isaiah 53, another another servant song that is linked to this, says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Or in the King James Version, it pleased the Lord to crush him. And so I want to encourage you with that this morning. Because sometimes I think we can be filled with a sort of of guilt that the Lord doesn't, doesn't want us anymore. That the, that the Lord didn't want, that, that we have angered the Lord forever because we made him send his only son to die for us. You know, our, our sin is, is sad and our sin, it, it's, it's terrible that our sin required the son of God to come and die. And we should mourn the effects of our sin daily. But God knew exactly what he was doing. And God is so full of love and grace and mercy that he doesn't extend his his hand of grace to you with a frown and with anger. He extends it to you with a smile upon his face. He, he, He looked upon your pitiful state and he didn't scoff at it. But instead he reached into the sin and rebellion that you were drowning in. He grabbed you out of it and he embraced you as one of his very own children. So Jesus and his work and his mission pleases the Lord. God delights in his plan of salvation for 
us. And so what then do we walk away from, from Jesus' baptism? Well, merging out of the water, we have here the Son of God, anointed by the Spirit and approved by the Father. And he is now ready and primed to become the King of Israel and Savior of the world. That's why the next step that he's going to go through is the step of testing. So he has the affirmation of the Father, he has the anointing of the Spirit, and now it's time to put that to the test through the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. But it's interesting that Luke doesn't go right to the wilderness account, like Matthew does, like Mark does. Instead, we find smack dab between those two passages the genealogy of Luke, or of Jesus, recorded by Luke. Matthew puts his right where you would expect, at the very beginning of the book. This is how Jesus came, this is who he came from. But Luke, for some reason, is waiting. He's waiting for this anointing and proclamation of the the Father to happen. But the question is why? Why does he, he put this here? Well, it's intentional on Luke's part. Genealogies are an important part of Jewish culture. Throughout Israel's history, they've, they've given information on the division of the land of promise. They've indicated information regarding inheritance for the tribes of Israel. They've played a role in the conscription of armies and the taxation of the people. But none of these seem to be the role that, that Luke is giving to his genealogy. So what then is the role? Well, it serves, I believe, the exact same purpose as his baptism. To show us from another angle that Jesus is truly the Son of God who has come to change the spiritual legacy of humanity. That Jesus is the one who fulfills all the promises of God and rights all the wrongs of those who have come before him. And this is communicated to us by the mention of a few specific names. Now, if you're like me, you probably didn't recognize most of the names on this list. You know, first you have, um, or you, you might have recognized maybe six or seven, but even then some of them you might be wondering, why, why are they included? Are they, are they significant to us at all? Well, there are three, three names from this list that I want to, to highlight for us that I think are important for us to understand. Three names specifically, and they're important because they're three names specifically related to the covenants that God has made with man. And covenants that, that we're still waiting for greater and ultimate fulfillment. First, you have the mention of the great king of Israel, David. And this reminds us of the promise and covenant that was made with David in the book of 2 Samuel 7. Where God says to David, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house... And your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so that is the promise 
that God makes to David. David wants to build the temple, but God says, no, I'm going to leave this for your son, the son who I'm, who, who I'm promising to you right now, who is going to come and establish your kingdom forever. Now, the immediate fulfillment of this is through Solomon, you know, the son of David who inherits the throne of his father. But in this, we see also that Solomon just partially fulfilled this. I mean, Solomon took the throne, but eventually he died. Solomon built uh, the Lord a house, but where is that house today? A pile of rubble. Solomon, uh, Solomon's offspring reigned for many years on the throne of Israel. But now what do we see in regards to the kingdom? It's no more. It's not reigning forever. And so this prophecy then waits to be fulfilled in its entirety. And then comes Jesus, the true son of David, the one who took the throne and still sits on the throne and will sit on the throne of his father forever until his enemies are made his footstool. Jesus, the true son of David, who builds the Lord a house that the people of God, that that might be the place where God himself dwells, one that is not overcome by the, the powers of hell that will never be that will never smash this this kingdom or this house. Jesus is the true Son of David who established a kingdom that truly continues forever. A kingdom not marked by physical boundaries, but a kingdom of God that spreads into every tribe and nation, bringing to the fold new citizens of his kingdom every day. A kingdom that will endure until he comes again and consummates it finally when when he rules forever as king. See, Jesus is this promised son of David that was given uh, in 2 Samuel 7. Now, the next important name is that of Abraham. You know, Abraham, the the father of the Jews, called by God to form a, a new people who would love and serve God. Promised in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, in the covenant to him, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Now here's an important one. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so we know the story. God gives Abraham a son, Isaac. And then God gives Isaac a son, Jacob. And then God gives Jacob 12 sons who form the nation of Israel. And you get the the partial fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that he will make them into a great nation. Israel grows and becomes a great nation. But what about the second half of that promise? What about the promise that all people, all nations of the earth will be blessed through you? You see, was, was Israel a blessing to the nations? Was Israel the the light to the Gentiles they were called to be? Was Israel the one through whom the nations, as Isaiah 2 pictures for us, would come streaming to worship and honor the Lord? Well, they were supposed to be. But how did they do at that? Rather than being different from the nations, Israel became just like the nations. Rather than saving the nations, Israel perished alongside of them. But out of Israel would come one who would draw all nations unto God. Out of Israel would come one who would bring a blessing 
to all peoples. It's as Galatians 3 verse 16 says. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. See, Jesus is the true offspring. Jesus is the the fulfillment of what Israel was meant to do. Jesus is the, the seed who would bring blessing not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. See, Jesus is that promised son of Abraham. And now the final person to note in this genealogy, and and the very last name on the list, and I think the most important, is Adam. Now Matthew's genealogy uh, in Matthew chapter 1 begins with Abraham, and it doesn't even go back past Abraham to Adam. But Luke, for some reason, feels it necessary to trace Jesus' lineage all the way back to this first man, the first Adam. Well, why is that? Well, because just as Adam represented humanity as the first man, Jesus represents a new humanity as the second Adam and the second man. Adam here in verse 38, look at what he's called. Adam is called the son of God. See, he was the first man ever created. Just as, as Jesus had no earthly father, the only other person to have that same situation is Adam. You know, God was Adam's father, making him a son of God. And as the first man and as the first son of God, Adam became the representative of all humanity. And we look at Adam and he is the, he is the symbolic head of the human race. Just as you have a king or a queen as, as the head of a nation, you know, their decisions are going to affect the nation, what happens in the nation. The same is true for Adam. Adam is the head, the representative of humanity. He's, the, he's he, going, going all the way back to the creation account. We read that God creates all the rest of the created order, the heavens, the, the earth, the plants, the seas, the fish, the birds, the animals. And then it culminates in the creation of this, this man. And he is the, the head of, he's the pinnacle of God's creation, the representative of all who would come after him. And God says, behold, it was very good. Kind of reminds us a little bit of the words that he says about his son after his baptism. And with him I am well pleased. Behold, it is very good. With him I am well pleased. And you see, Adam was given dominion over the land. He ruled as the first king over God's creation. He ruled as the first priest, keeping and maintaining the Garden of Eden, God's temple where he dwelt. He was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with others who would enjoy communion with their God and, their, and, and give their lives in worshiping him. But what happened? Well, Adam completely failed at his task. He was deceived by the serpent, sought to be like God and to be worshipped alongside God. And as a result, he's plagued all of humanity into sin. You know, why is there so much death and pain and suffering and rebellion and sin in this world? What's well, because of Adam, our representative head? Why is every single person born into a sinful nature that desires the things of the flesh rather than the things of God? Well, it's because of Adam, our representative head. 
Why is every single person separated from the presence of God and under the wrath of God? It's because of Adam, the representative head of all of humanity. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. And later he says, by the, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. Adam was supposed to lead humanity in righteousness, but instead he condemned all of humanity to death and the wrath of God. Now why is humanity's a, a legacy, a legacy of sin and rebellion and death? It's because Adam sinned and all of humanity is like their father Adam. We are all like our father Adam. Sinful, rebellious, rejecting the Lord, seeking to be our own gods. But behold, a new and a second Adam has come. A new and a second Son of God has arisen. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Though the first Adam was deceived by the serpent, the second Adam comes and crushes the head of the serpent. Though the first Adam put all humanity into bondage to sin and death, the second Adam comes and releases us from the shackles that enslave us. The first Adam condemned all of humanity because of his lust for a tree. The second Adam comes and saves all of humanity through his death on a tree. The first Adam, through his disobedience, brought death and eternal punishment. The second Adam, through his obedience, has brought life eternal. See, the first Adam is the head of a sinful, rebellious humanity. The second Adam is the head of a new humanity. One marked by holiness and righteousness. I read a part from Romans 5 earlier, but listen to what the rest of Romans 5 says. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespass death reigned throughout through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in, in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the true and better, better Adam. He's the true and better son of God. He emerges out of the legacy of sin and rebellion that is set by Adam and all who come after him. And he comes out as this new and pure and holy and righteous head of a new humanity. You see, in Jesus there are no more genealogies. Now, this is the last genealogy of the Bible for a reason. Because the only descent that matters now is that of the descendants of the faith. As John 1, verse 12 to 13 says, To all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. And so you see, there are only two options available for us. We are either in the first Adam, the father of humanity that we were all born into, or we are in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, 
the father of a new humanity that we are born into by faith and repentance. And so which one will you choose to be a part of? Will you stay in your sin and your slavery? Or, you, or will you be set free, breaking the legacy of sin and death and entering into a new legacy of righteousness and life under the king of Israel, the offspring of Abraham, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we see that your word is, is not just a series of disconnected stories, but that it tells one great and grand story. Lord, that of our sin and our rebellion, but that of your reversing and breaking the curse. Lord, that everything in the word pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ who would come as the one who would redeem a humanity that has only ever rebelled and hated God. And so, Lord, we give you great thanks for the second and better Adam. Lord, for the, the second man, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, who is not of the flesh, but is of the Spirit. And Lord, who imparts to us new, true life. And I pray, Lord, if there be anybody here, Lord, that doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that has not submitted to him, that is still in their sins being ruled by the humanity imparted to them through the, the, the first sin of their father, Adam. Lord, that you would grant them freedom. Lord, that you would grant them faith and repentance and that they may be brought, anew, and that, that they may, may be made anew under the true and better Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.